You're listening to Deeper Magic. Hey everyone, this is the Deeper Magic Podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Peter and I'm here with my daughter, Anna. Say hi, Anna. Hi, Peter. Why did you, what? What, how do we do this beginning thing again? Are you okay? We've been doing this for so <laughs> long. Anna, I'm 52 years old. My brain doesn't always like work as, as readily and functionally as it used to. We've so, watched Sing Street, right? Say uh, hi, Anna. That's yeah, how we do this. Hi, Anna. There we go. Okay, but yes. you've watched Sing Street, right? <laughs> yes. The okay. I have. For those of you who haven't seen Sing Street, brilliant movie. It is Would a good movie. totally recommend it. It's a fantastic musical. It's set in Ireland in the 80s, and it's just these four or not four. I don't know. There's like four main characters, but there's a couple of other side characters. But it's just this group of like Irish Catholic boys in the 80s who decide to make a band. Yeah. And it's hilarious. And I love it. Um, But one of my favorite lines that my brother and I quote to each other all the time is at one point somebody says something and I don't even remember what he says. And one of the guys looks at him and he just goes, are you mentally ill? And I like, (laughs) yeah, that's how I felt when we just started this episode and you were like, how do we do this? I was like, are you mentally ill? (laughs) Well, it actually is a good lead in. Uh, So the answer to the question is I'm sure in many ways, known and unknown, I am Mm -hmm. mentally ill. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we were starting the conversation last week on Deeper Magic about mental health. And it's obviously such a big conversation. We have gotten some questions and comments from people who are listening about the kinds of things that we want to cover. And I think we're we're not going to start diving into some of those things yet this week. And I think for both of us, we feel like I often feel in class when my students ask me questions as a professor that I don't know anything about at the end of the day, or at Mm -hmm. least I don't feel comfortable. And they're such important questions that I don't want to just riff off the top of my head on some of those things. So Mm -hmm. some of the questions, honestly, that they ask me about life, faith, sexuality, families, relationships, Bible, all those sorts of things, it, it often takes me weeks and even maybe months to feel like I have a credible potential pathway of conversation related yeah. to it. And and so we are going to get into the mental health conversation mm-hmm. further with some of the questions, but I think both you and I feel like we want to make sure that we do the right kind of work related to them before we kind of break open the box because it's such an important and sensitive subject. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. And I think some of the, some of the topics that people have brought up in terms of what they would or wouldn't want to talk about are, um, so sensitive and also so fresh, like topics that were just introduced to me like yesterday or the right. day before. Right. Um, that I was like, I really don't wanna rush into that and kind of go into such a important conversation without really knowing where we're gonna go with all of that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we just wanted to sit on it for another week or two and mm-hmm. just and see where we end up with all of that. Yeah. And so today we'll talk a little bit. This is, uh, we're actually recording on the 19th of May. Mm-hmm. And uh, we today got the news of the it passing. The it is the 19th. Yeah. Ooh. The passing of, uh, of Timothy Keller. I'm going to talk a little bit about that mm-hmm. uh, today. Somebody with whom you are not familiar yeah. and certainly not of your generation, but somebody who has had significant public Christian prominence in these last mm-hmm. 30 or 40 years. So we'll talk a little bit about him and some reflections on that. And we're also going to dive into your, is this your first ever exegetical paper, like a full on one for class? I know you've done exegetical work, but this is this paper oh, yeah. was about 20 pages that you had to do on Genesis one. Yeah, I've done, I've done some exegesis work before here and there, but nothing this like comprehensive. Um, 
Yeah, but I it was, I think, six verses, and it ended up being about 20 pages of content in regards to that. So this is, this is for sure the deepest dive I've done into any of this. Yeah, and I think for people who are not familiar with that word exegesis— At least in an academic setting, right. I would say. For people who are not familiar with that word exegesis, it just simply means to use uh, well-established investigative tools to get into the to the original ideas of the biblical text. And sometimes that can be commentaries or looking at the Greek and Hebrew, and you did a mm-hmm. number of things related to that. Yeah, and what yeah. I appreciate <laughs> about you doing that is that the, con- the, the, the conflicting or, or uh, opposite thing that we can do with scripture is what's called eisegesis, which we... That's a word you made up. No, it's I not. Don't believe it's an, you. No, that I, sounds like a terrible. I am an name. exegetical Eisegesis. technician. I, I have been hired to do this kind of work at the okay, university level. Okay, you've seen level. Incredibles, right? Uh, for sure, I've seen. That Incredibles. made me think of Frozone, like Eisegesis. That's <laughs> well, okay. the worst superhero name I've ever. Well, heard. maybe it should be a good superhero name. No, uh, but I don't know what that superhero. They, that superhero would have to impose themselves into the situation somehow. That would be their superpower because that's what you so do. So maybe it's a supervillain. Yeah, well, it's when you. It, that's what you do when you do eisegesis. And I'll tell you what, a lot of people do it where they get committed to an idea and then they read that idea into the Bible rather oh. than let the Bible bend the arc of their idea. So exegesis is simply trying to understand the Bible on its terms. And I was going to say something snarky about modern Christianity, but I well, felt like I was maybe taking it a step no, no, too no, far. No, 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 because I have some snarky things to say about the eisegesis process too. And, okay. and we all do it on some level in fairness, oh, but, but I think it's the people who seem like they should know better. They're Mm -hmm. Bible teachers. I literally just heard it this week uh, again from a Bible teacher that I know. Uh, He teaches publicly. And he's he loves to use the phrase that I guard my doctrine closely is what he says. And so what he means by that, and as I've experienced sort of his teaching over the years, is that he's committed to a predefined set of ideas Mm-hmm. that the Bible is for sure saying, and then he reads those ideas into other passages and other verses and other uh, other texts. And, oh my gosh, it gets so confusing so fast. And and it was, it was interesting listening to some pushback from people that he was teaching that started having all sorts of questions about the stuff that he was teaching. Yeah. And he didn't really have any answers for them that were even remotely helpful. And I just mm-hmm. kind of sat back and I thought, this is the equivalent of having a house where most of it is crooked, right? Yeah. Like all the rooms are crooked, but you are convinced and persuaded that the first thing that you laid down, your first foundation stone and and walls that came from it, those are for sure plumb. We know that that's right. We know that it's straight. (laughs) I don't really know why everything else that has come off of that original foundation is wonky, but I'm going to stay committed to the foundation. And so then the Bible ends up being super wonky for so many people Mm-hmm. When you do eisegesis, which is simply, I'm committed to this doctrine. I know it's true. I'm not ever going to bend that. And and then I end up bending almost all the rest of Scripture to yeah. fit my predefined ideas. So so that's eisegesis that's reading into. What was your snarky comment? Well, I was just going to say that most pastors, most Bible professors, most spiritual leaders that I've encountered in my life do that in For some sure. capacity. And one of my favorite things about that is that then they warp their idea of God to match their doctrine Yep. Um, instead of letting their doctrine be changed by what God is actually saying and doing. Yeah, um, that's a great way to say it. 
Yeah, and it pisses me off. Well, uh, and and it's <laughs> like the idea of exegesis is that you should almost always have dang it moments. You should always yeah. have moments where you're like, oh my gosh, that seems wrong. to be what the Bible says. Dang it, I was wrong about that. Yeah, and I'm willing to to um, to change my mind. But I think so many people who have understandably walked away from institutional versions of Christianity walk away because of what you described. Is mm-hmm. that there there are enough teachers out there, unfortunately that aren't willing to have dang it moments, they just continue to uh, impose their beliefs and and stay committed to those rather than scripture. So Yeah, well, and, and it's it ties back into our conversation about spiritual leadership a few does. weeks ago it with does. Holly and Noah, where we were like, one of the biggest things in a spiritual leader is that they have to be willing to hear their people and hear God and admit when they are wrong. Um, and that is not something that our culture has created space for spiritual leaders to do because otherwise they lose all their credibility if yeah. they say they were wrong about something. That's it. Well, and, and even at the university level, you get your PhD based on some idea that you have supported in theory with evidence, and mm-hmm. then you create this thesis, and then you get awarded your PhD, and then you get hired at university based on your PhD. Well, you can't ever go back and question the premises of your research because then the very reason why you got hired is going to be in question. So there's a lot in all of that. But I think like your your exegesis paper was really intriguing this time around. I'm looking Mm -hmm. forward to talking through that a little bit. But maybe just one quick side note is again, uh, 19th of May, Tim Keller passed away today. and, And this relates to that because he was somebody who uh, I, I sort of watched, obviously, from afar, like most people did, uh, that experienced his ministry from my generation and maybe the next generation below me. What's that, the millennial generation? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Gen X, millennial, baby boomers certainly were would have known Tim Keller. It's fascinating that you don't. It's fascinating to me how quick prominence fades from public yeah. consciousness on any level. But I will say this, is that at a time when there was a lot of understandable skepticism related to institutional Christianity, Tim Keller offered something different. And and what I mean by that is I only had a chance to interview him one time as part of my radio work. And I was always intrigued at how people were off the air versus Mm -hmm. on the air. Yeah, absolutely. And in my my, my very short experience with him off the air is that he was every bit the real deal that he was mm-hmm. on the air. And so there was that integrity factor that even if I didn't, it didn't mean that I agreed with everything that Keller taught and he would not probably agree with everything that I teach, but there there was an integrity factor that I so appreciated yeah. in who he was. And so he was able to be a person of prominence that gave some measure of credibility to this Christian faith at a time in which it was understandably, you know, people were, were had all kinds of skepticism about it. So I don't know if that's the kind of thing you would look for in any kind of a leader is that sense of integrity about who Absolutely. they are off the record. Yeah, no, I think that's such a huge thing for me is is when people are the same um, in all of their con- Well, no, I don't want to say that because like I'm I'm a different person at home than I am in my university classroom, sure. than I am in my D&D groups, than I am while I'm at work. Yeah, um, but you're fundamentally but like, yeah. The, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I am fundamentally the same in all of those spaces. And I'm not, um, there might be differences in like what I would say to people or or how I would 
interact with them on a on a different level, but like fundamentally I'm not changing who I am in those spaces. And I, I think more what you're talking about here in terms of spiritual leadership is the idea of like if somebody is very kind and benevolent and graceful and whatever when the cameras are rolling, when the mic is live, yeah. and then all of that goes away and suddenly they're yelling or they're rude or they're whatever. Like that that's when I'm like, no, I I don't have any interest in this. But when somebody would talk to a congregation the same way that they would talk to an individual. Yes. That's when I'm like, oh, I don't know that I will trust everything that you have to say, but I'm at least more inclined to hear you out. Yeah. And and I think he was somebody, again, who was willing to change his mind mm-hmm. based on the evidence. And and I don't think you can also, like, I, I think he had a deep and genuine and authentic love for Jesus in ways that shined out of him. This was a statement that his son released two days ago, I want to say, just mm. when it was clear that he, that Tim was in his last days. Uh, his son, Michael, released this. It said, uh, today, dad is being discharged from the hospital to receive hospice care at home. Mm. Over the past few days, he has asked us to pray with him often. He expressed many times through prayer his desire to go home to be with Jesus. His family is very sad because we all wanted more time, but we know he has very little at this point. In prayer, he said two nights ago, I'm thankful for all the people who have prayed for me over the years. I'm thankful for my family that loves me. I'm thankful for the time that God has given me, but I'm ready to see Jesus. I can't wait to see Jesus send me home. Wow. You know, so when when f- the stats I think are something around only 10% of pastors finish in a way that could be described filled with faith at the end of it, which, I mean, mm-hmm. it just speaks to, I mean, like among the bazillions yeah. things yeah, that, that no speaks kidding. to about that. And and I was, I've talked to somebody who is involved in major organizational transitions across a variety of different kinds of organizations. And he says that typically speaking, the megachurch pastor is a bit of a horse's ass behind the scenes. Those are his words. You can not swear. Mine. No, no, donkey behind the scenes. Uh-huh. No, that would make sense. Horse's ass behind the scenes. Uh, and- Did I ever tell you about, sorry, this is for sure a side note. Sure. But watching the John Green world history videos growing up in homeschool. <laughs> Did he swear in those? No, not technically. And okay. this was young Anna's favorite thing in the whole world. By the way, if you have not watched John Green's world history videos, 10 out of 10 would recommend. They're hilarious. Um <laughs> But one of my favorite things was he, whenever there was like a timeline where he was showing a really long period of time, the timeline itself would be a donkey that he like stretched out Mm. over the bottom of the screen. And the thing that he would always say, and he was like, and it's not swearing if I'm referring to an actual donkey, (laughs) this is what historians would refer to as a long ass time. Yeah. And that's (laughs) That's, so funny. I remember that. Yeah. You guys used to love that. And I, I, 12 year old Anna loved the excuse to swear about timelines in history class because that was uh, dates were always my least favorite thing. Um, <laughs> that's so funny. Shockingly, but right. um, yeah. Anyways, continue. No, that's it. I think that was just and and again, you know, mega church pastors. In fairness to them, are often not given the tools and the resources mm-hmm. to to really try to finish the journey well. And and I also know a number that have, but but the vast majority because of the way in which our institutional church is designed and, and the way it is expressed in our country today. Those mm-hmm. are just the stats. Now, make of them what you will, but 
Those are the stats. And Keller was not one of them. He, I mean, he finished yeah. filled with faith. Maybe just one other quick comment, and then we'll get into your paper, is somebody asked me today to, to compare the impact or legacy of Tim Keller and Dallas Willard, mm-hmm. who is somebody that we've referenced at times. Uh, he's another person that I had the good fortune, not on the radio show, but he came to a church in which I was on the pastoral staff at that yeah. time. And so I was part of a small group of people that had lunch with him. And Willard made such an impact, not through his public prominence, but through his his education, teaching and stuff. And he mm-hmm. really emphasized that this whole Christian thing is about discipleship. It's not doing some magic ritual to get yourself positioned properly for heaven on the other side. Yeah. And he did a beautiful job of articulating that. But he was also mesmerizing to me in the sense that he had almost no charisma when he would stand in front of a public and speak. I mean, yeah. literally, the guy had no gestures. He had no <laughs> vocal range. He had absolutely nothing. And yet you couldn't take your ears and eyes off of him because— you take your ears well, off Well, I mean, you know, because you, you were listening and uh-huh. watching, right? And, and the reason why—at least I found that I couldn't is because— he was, again, the person who believed to his toes the things that he was mm-hmm. presenting publicly. He wasn't putting on a face or a Christian face. Uh, he even admonished me behind the scenes at one point. We were sitting over lunch. And, you know, church, church politics get funny at times, even among staffs. There's oh, yeah. like There's like competing strategies that like the staff gets in conflict. I've heard. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, and I've got a thousand of them for you. Mm-hmm. But this is one of them is that in the church I was in at the time, there was all this angst that all the money was being poured into the Sunday morning service. And, and this happens in a lot of places. And mm-hmm. the, the team that I was a part of was the community life team. And so it was our job to bring a greater sense of community to this mega church where everybody's just coming as an audience to an event on Sundays. And so, like, there's even some behind-the-scenes chatter among our teams, like, Willard's here. We need to get him on our side. What? No, I know. This is the kind of stuff that happens. I'm not kidding. And uh, And so I spoke up. Mm-hmm. during lunch with Willard and he was talking about things in the future of the church. I don't remember the exact conversation. It was probably something along that. And I was like, but don't you think church has to start with community? I mean, I, I was the ambassador. Of oh, you my were team. ready. Oh, I was. You I were was. ready for that. And, and that was some high school girl level uh, manipulation over really, there. And when I'm, she like goes to her boyfriend and she's like, would you love me if I was a worm? <laughs> and he's like, I don't know how to answer this question. <laughs> All the answers are wrong. Oh man. And so I did that and I, I can't, and I can't say that I believed it. So there was mm-hmm. lack of integrity and, and Pastor Kapsner at this, I think I was 33-ish maybe, you mm-hmm. know, and kind of intoxicated with being a megachurch, on a megachurch staff and all of what goes with it and and blah. And so I asked him, but he looked over at me and he said something to the effect of, um, no, he said, <laughs> if you have bad teaching, the church is going to end up in a really bad place. It was something along those lines. That's really funny. And he was somebody who would advocate for relationships and community and discipleship. Yeah. But it was, so... I, I was admonished by Dallas Willard. It was one of my, my proudest wow. moments. But I think their, again, their durable impact that is a shared impact is um, that they really were the same people behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. And they're some of the few people that I watched actually grow in their love of Jesus over the course of a lifetime. And and I think Tim Keller meant every word of it when he said, I really, I like, I really want to go home. I really... Mm-hmm. Uh, want, want to spend that time in in his presence as we await for his return and the, the final redemption of the world. So those are yeah. my thoughts about Keller and, and Willard for today. It's it's mm-hmm. kind of a, for my generation and the people uh, above and below my generation, that it's sort of a momentous day. I definitely was getting yeah. some texts today uh, about this event. And um, mm-hmm. so it's, it's a big day, but. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Okay. 
All right. So into your exegesis paper that I'm sure you eisegeted because you are yep. uh, you have such lack of integrity. I'm a sinner and, and a heretic. <laughs> for sure. Obviously. So you did a paper on Genesis 1, 26 through 31. Mm-hmm. That's the 31 is the final verse of Genesis 1. Is that right? Uh, I mean, because technically it kind of carries over into chapter a, two. Yeah. But. Yep. And so part of my paper covers that. It does. Um, okay. For, for the purposes of my paper, the section that I'm talking about is 26 through 31, and that's kind of considered its own, like, isolated section. So within the, ooh, okay, super long story short, basically, generally agreed on in academic communities, the first, the quote unquote first creation account goes from Genesis 1-1 to, I believe, Genesis 2-3. Hmm, yeah, and then that's the exactly right. second one begins at 2-4. There's some dispute about that. Right. For a number of reasons that are far too complicated to get into. I did have to address all of them. I went through 80 pages of reading before I was like, screw it. I'm saying <laughs> one, one to two, three, moving on. I think, that's, um, I think that's fair. And I think most people understand Genesis 1 to be poetry, even though it actually happened, but it's mm-hmm. being told in poetic language. And 2, yeah. 4, and 4, it kind of picks up in more of a narrative story kind of thing. So I think that's why people yeah. get confused on some of it. But it's it's an interesting conversation for sure. Yeah. And I think what's really interesting about the idea of Genesis 1-1 being poetry, which I don't necessarily disagree with, um, I actually think that is exactly right, is some of the research that I was finding about this is that it is presenting like the factual information as bluntly as possible. Right. As like, this is what happened, which is not normally what we associate with poetry, but also this is Hebrew poetry, not modern English yeah. poetry, which is two very different things. Do you think, I, I don't think I could name three poets. Like, I know your English literature. I bet I can't, can I try? Three poets? I really you don't think I could. name three Is Robert poets? Burns a, a poet? Yeah. Okay, but he wrote Odd Lang Syne too, didn't he? Uh, yeah, I think so. so I Ro- think that's right. I, 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 I might only be able to name one. Um, let's see. Uh, Robert Burns was not someone that I was expecting you to go to first. There are a lot more famous poets than Robert Burns. Well, they, all of those famous poets escape me. Okay. Uh, okay. So is there a first name of a poet that maybe I could maybe say the last name? Uh, Robert. Louis Stevenson? Yeah. Didn't he write? Wasn't he the guy that wrote the pirate book? He did Kidnapped. All right. um, But yeah, he also did poetry. Okay. All right. Um, Uh, I think I'm out. Anyway, so. Hang on. Hang on. I want to see. Yeah, he did poetry. Yeah. Um, Okay. Who wrote the. the, Is The Raven a poem? Yeah. Who wrote that one? Do you know? Poe. Edgar Allan Poe. (gasps) That's one. That's a poem. Yeah, I should have gotten that Uh one right. I also have Emily Dickinson, Gerard Manley Hopkins. Yep. I love Gerard Manley Hopkins. Okay. Um, I would say Carry and Comfort by Gerard Manley Hopkins is probably my favorite poem right now. Okay. It's it's brilliant. We should go over it sometime. Um, But the point is, is that Genesis 1 is not- William Wordsworth is brilliant as well. Yeah, okay. Yeah. uh All right. I definitely- I would fail all five squares on the Jeopardy board when it comes to, to to poetry. But the point is, is that Genesis 1 poetry is very different than uh, American poetry, but it does mm-hmm. require then understanding some of that as you're just trying to dig into it. Yeah. And part of the language is really interesting. You were telling me before we started mm-hmm. that as you got into 20, verse, is it verse 26? Yeah, where maybe. we. I don't know where you're going with this. We we see see some things about how God reveals God's self 
you said something really interesting that God is plural in essence, but singular oh, in yes. how okay. he appears. So yep. take us into this idea because the Trinity confuses everybody all the time. Yeah. So I have a, ooh, okay, that's a good place for me to start, actually. Yeah. Um, I used so to be a radio show host. Things... I kind of, you know, I could, I could run the interviews. <laughs> um, also, what I'm realizing is that in the same way that you have failed me in teaching me theology, I have failed you in teaching you English. So buckle up because our next four episodes are going to be you learning to analyze English poetry. Wow. Okay. Um, and I didn't realize until now I failed to teach you theology, but let's try. I, we have talked about that so much. All right. That's very fair. <laughs> um, okay. I'm sorry. I'm pulling up Genesis one twenty six because I want to see what the actual verse is. And I should have had this prepared ahead of time, but I don't um, because I'm a verb. I don't know how that <laughs> translates to what we're talking about, but it does. Yeah. Um, okay. Verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Um, so there's a lot of debate about that word us and what that could mean, what he could be referring to there. Um, some of the ones that I read that I was like, wow, I really just hate that idea. Um, is that it's like a plural of majesty where it's like the Royal we or whatever. And I'm like, that's no, or like consulting some sort of heavenly court. But then the implications of that is that like somehow humanity is also made in the image of the heavenly court. And that's just weird and theologically dense and the whole thing. However, the name of God in Genesis, uh, Genesis one, two is where it says the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Um, that those words, spirit of God is Ruach Elohim. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is, Ruach is the feminine name of God, usually referring to the spirit. Um, and then Elohim is the name of God, um, usually referring to what we think of as God the Father. Yeah. So the idea here is that God is a being who outwardly, appears to be singular in some sense, not saying God has a like physical form, right? No, but in the idea that like the outward essence of God is singular, but within that essence, there is a plurality of Mm. being, um, which then we now as modern Christians understand as the Trinity as well. We've, we've added Jesus into that mix. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's, there was a puzzle out on the um, podcast table when we walked in mm-hmm. this morning in, into our little studio here. And is it fair to say that like a puzzle, when it's fully completed, mm-hmm. appears as sort of this unified whole, the singular whole, there's a, there's a whole picture, but it's made up of sort of different parts somehow. I mean, there's yes. different pieces. Yeah. Now, that, that, any analogy about God is going to fall short. So we mm-hmm. just, of course, say that. But as we try to approximate what you're suggesting, yeah, which one of the reasons why we're bringing it up is a huge dang it moment. And in the text, if we allow it to be a dang it moment, is mm-hmm. what you just said about Ruach Elohim, Ruach, Ruach Elohim, which yeah. is the, there within the Hebrew language, it's either masculine or it's neutral, which defaults to masculine, yes. which is why we don't have neutral. So sometimes mm-hmm. we see a he or something that appears masculine in text, but it's only neutral defaulting to masculine. But especially then pay attention to when there's a feminine expression of some kind, mm-hmm. because there isn't any default to the feminine. Yes. And, and there is, like spirit is almost always represented as something feminine within mm-hmm. the biblical text. And this is going to have big implications for, I think, where you're going in your yes. paper 
about what that means for us as people on this earth. Yeah. And and really quickly back to the Trinity thing, um, part of or one of the ways that I have heard that described that I really liked is the outwardly singular but inwardly plural is the idea of an egg. Because when you're looking at it, it looks like one thing, yes. but it's the shell, the yolk and the white. Yeah, yeah. And it's all in, but it's all in one thing. But then when you like break it open, you have three things that are making it up. Um, and yeah. so I like I've used that analogy to talk about the idea of the of the outward singularity and the inward plurality. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, what you were saying about um, Hebrew, if it is uh, gender neutral it defaults to the masculine um, that <laughs> I spent so much of my like page count in this essay talking about that. Um, because for those of you who haven't picked up on it by now, I'm very passionate about um, equality in the church between men and women. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that has some really significant implications for um, verse 27 here. And I'm using I'm using the New King James Version. What's really interesting here is that the translation will change depending on which version you're using. It totally does. And that is always such an important thing to pay attention to. Well, and and I appreciate what you're saying about the equality in the church too, because Mm -hmm. you've known me long enough to know that I think when people use that kind of language, that some people roll their eyes and say, oh, you're just acquiescing to American Mm -hmm. culture. You're becoming more X, Y, Z, like whatever it is. No, we're just simply trying to have dang it moments from the from the text. Like, what is the text actually teaching? And one of the questions I get from students all the time is along the lines of, well, I mean, God's a father. God must be a dude, you know, all of that. And <laughs> and just like how often this is simply I really deep. wanted to just yell no. And <laughs> then know. I realized that I was going to max out the mic. And then I thought about the possibility of me running out of the room and yelling no so yes. that you could hear it through the mic. So like, no, in my spirit, I'm doing that right <laughs> that's, now. That's kind of what a parent will, will maybe sometimes do if they're feeling mm-hmm. frustrated, but they don't want their kids to hear it. They run outside and just yeah. yell yeah, somewhere. But and this does not mean that masculinity is not within God. I mean, like mm-hmm. that is part of the deal. And so is femininity. But the idea that God is masculine without feminine of any kind is just bonkers to me. And so often yeah. what we see in the text that appears that God is, it, the translators have no other choice but to take neutral and default it over into masculine. Mm-hmm. And this gets a little confusing, but it's really important to know it is that for, for I, I often have young conservative evangelical, primarily male students, but sometimes female students who will say, well, God's a boy. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, I understand that on some level related to the defaulting into the English and Hebrew or whatever, but that's not what's the case. But we can say that both masculinity and femininity mm-hmm. are in God's self, in the in the egg yeah. of things, as it were. It's not all of who God is, but but it's all in there. Yeah. And then part of what I run into as well in the idea of equality um, between male and female in the church is the idea um, that you'll hear in like complementarianism where it's like, oh, no, you are equal. You just have different roles. Right. And I'm like, OK, Blech. except for somehow the men can do all of the things that women can do. But women can't do all the things that men can do. See, I have taught you proper theology. What are you talking about? I taught myself that when I did my exegetical paper (laughs) for um, Mr. Bilby's class. Um, Shout out Mr. Bilby. Yes. Um, Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. But so take us more into this Genesis thing because then we see what you're describing 
reflected in, in, in these passages. Yeah, so go for yeah, it. Yeah, so in verse 27, the translation that I'm using in the New King James Version, which I, I do like, even though this part pisses me off, is, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Yeah. And one of the things, Dad, that you've talked about a lot in your classes is this weird perception that somehow... Um, I think it's especially coming from the second creation account in Genesis where it's two for like sure. God created man and then he brought all the animals in front of Adam and <laughs> Adam was like, nah. And God was like, okay, well, you need somebody around. And I apparently messed up making only one of you. Yes. And so I'm going to make a woman out of you. But because she came out of you, she is subordinate to you. She is your helper and your assistant right. and your secretary. Um, yep. and you're going to be the big boss man here. Um, <laughs> have we haven't, have we, and forgive me, have mm-hmm. we on Deeper Magic yet really talked through that Genesis 2 story? I don't think we have in terms of what's all there. We have some of the building blocks for it and what it means that it's not good that man should be alone and, mm-hmm. and help her. We really need to go through that at yeah. some point. And maybe this is setting a foundation, what you're doing in Genesis Absolutely. 1, to do some of that uh, at some point. But but to your point, you're right. I have some pretty, I have some fun with that story because it's like, <laughs> Well, I don't like the beaver. I don't like the antelope. I don't like the the armadillo. The like, cat is pretty great, yeah. but like he and, doesn't seem to really want to be around me all that much. Right. Yeah. And as the man and as God as the man is sort of rejecting all of the animals, God is starting to panic and, mm-hmm. and he sort of slays Adam in the spirit briefly to put him to sleep just so he can create some space to Before think about. Before Adam to do realizes next. that God messed up. Totally, yeah. yeah. And then God and then God just rips out a rib and, and chucks together the one. So we'll mm-hmm. we can talk through all of that, but this does set a foundation for that because it's the one thing that I'll say that I think will help point backwards to what you're about to say mm-hmm. is that in the Genesis 2 account, it says, and then God created man and placed man in the garden and gave man the command that the word there for man is a dom. It's just humankind. Yeah. He's saying to humankind, to humankind, to humankind. And it's not until humankind wakes up and having had something pulled from his side and sees her. This is the Mm -hmm. first time we see male and female actually show up in the biblical text is after she's pulled from her side, his side, and they're separated from one another. And so the point of all of that is that this was not single male dude. God chucked her together. There was like a wholeness represented that then God separated into its already pre-existing parts. So, yeah. And I mean, that's actually, that's the essence of what I was going to say about um, verse 27. Well, it's in there, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and so that uh, when he says in the image of God, he created him. Um, what that word is, it's not him. Um, it's better translated as self or entity. So okay. in the image of God, he created an entity. Interesting. Um, I didn't know that. Because it's a singular, it, it's a singular being. It defaults to the masculine. Um, so wait, so also, just so I'm clear on this, that God created him that it's more, it's entity you're saying? God created an entity. God created Uh, an entity, male and female, he created an entity. Yeah, so I have heard something similar to that. And so, but because it's a singular being, it it defaults to the masculine. Um, And throughout the creation story, everything before verse 26, I mean, not everything before verse 26, um, but the the pattern of creation in the waters, in the dry land, in light, in night and day, in whatever is the idea that God creates something as its whole and then separates yeah. it out into its parts. And so if you take that idea and then combine it with the idea of God's inward plurality and outward singularity, if we are created in the image of God, 
the idea that God created single male dude and then realized that he messed up because he broke all the patterns of creation and he only created part of his image of godness or whatever. And so then was like, oh, shoot, I should have made single female person as well. Um, I was going to say single female dude, but like that felt weird. Um, <laughs> single weird. female dudette. Although um, people like girl, women call each other bros. Oh, dude. I do. Like yeah. this is so, anyway. Okay. Um, so yeah, confusing no, all the to time. me. But, um, yeah, no, it seems way more likely that God created a outwardly singular mm. being that contained both the male and the female creating something in its whole that was also the image of God and then separated it out into male and female. And what was really interesting is that as I was doing my research for this paper, the only support that I found, and and maybe there is other support out there, but the only support that I found for translating it as him over them, it was just that. It was a difference in translation. Yeah, that's Um, so. And the default to the masculine. But Mm. there isn't, as far as I have seen, something in the Hebrew that would suggest that this was single male dude. I think that's so interesting. And I think what you pointed out about the pattern of creation is so important as well, because again, we've just been conditioned to think of Genesis 1 as mm-hmm. God giving us a bit of science. And I know yeah. we've talked about that before, but it just, <laughs> we just missed the entire point of Genesis 1. And, and maybe to even give some more details of what you're talking about, when you look at day one, God created light. And then God created and then separated the light from the darkness. The darkness was within the light, Mm -hmm. but he separated them out. Or God created the waters on day two and then separated the waters above from the waters below. God created the heavenly bodies and then separated the sun, moon, and stars. He created the animal kingdom and then separated the birds, fish, and land animals. And so Mm -hmm. this pattern, like... It doesn't stop in day six. God yeah. creates the the fullness, as you're saying, or the wholeness of something and separates it out. It's actually more than just interesting. It's a total game changer for how we perceive of one another. And I think it very much diminishes the theology of complementarianism yeah. that would suggest that the dude needs to be in charge because he was created first. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was it, That's the very error that the Artemis women were committing in in the time of Ephesus and Paul, except that they were saying women were created first and therefore men were subservient to them. Yeah. So it's just real. Anyway, all of it's really interesting, but continue because this is great stuff. Yeah. So the other thing that um, I think was my biggest takeaway from this is that the the uh, class that I've been writing this paper for is a study in biblical holiness mm-hmm. um, or and in what that means. Um, and The first place that I want to go with that is that what the word holy means in the Old Testament is more literally is set apart. Yes. Um, Which is really different than than more of a Puritan version of holiness, which is like, how unsinful am I? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, not that. Not that at all. Um, Yeah. And what's really interesting is that, and I'm not going to dive too deep into this because that would take too much time, is that throughout the creation account, And really, this is like, if you go through and read it and you're paying attention to it, you can see how this creation pattern builds on itself, um, where it it always begins with, then God said, and then ends with the, and the whatever day. Um, But within that, there are things that get added to each process as it it goes on. Um, And so there is the, he calls it good. And then the morning and the evening were the first day. Um, And then I think it is with the 
animals um, that he blesses them. Mm-hmm. And then it is with humankind that he, um, oh yeah, here it is. So it's uh, let the waters abound, let the earth bring forth, let the, let the, let the, but he is blessing those like living creatures. And then he says, let us make. And so it's hmm. it's coming from God, not from That's the so earth, not from the waters, not from the whatever. It's let us make. Um, and then he blesses them, and he also then gives them their function, um, provides for them in verse 29, and then he sees everything that he has made, and indeed it was very good. Um, and so you even see in how the structure of Genesis 1 is set up, that humankind is set apart as something entirely different from the rest of creation. Um, and so part of what the, this was a quote from one of the resources that I was using, um, Kidner, it was one of Kidner's commentaries. Um, and he says that this is an expression of the eternal incorporeal creator in terms of temporal bodily creaturely existence. I have absolutely no idea what that means. So say that again. Yeah. An expression of the eternal incorporeal creator in terms of temporal bodily creaturely existence. Oh, and so it's right? basically saying that taking something that's eternal and non-visible and mm-hmm. giving it shape and substance. Yes. And so what he says is he says, similarly to a transcription of an epic into a sculpture or a mm. symphony into a sonnet. Okay. That's helpful. Right. Um, and so part of what my takeaway from this was, is that the image and likeness of God is structural to human beings and and therefore our holiness or our set apartness is structural to our being um which i think is so important because then this is the thing from kidner that i really love he says as long as we are human we are by definition in the image of god yeah um and you could get into all sorts of philosophical concepts of what it means to be human but like that the, the the general idea is just by nature of our existence, we are the image of God. Um, and then one of my favorite things about that that I, again, found in my research for this paper was that after the fall of man, I don't, I think it's weirdly in Genesis 5, um, which... Mm-hmm. I don't know. Don't they, quote me on no, that. No, no, they, they where they do, uh, they do the almost a creation account okay. again, right? Yeah, and yeah. it says Adam got a son in his own image. Okay. I think I think that's in Genesis 5. Yeah, I'm yeah, not yeah. totally Which sure. Which it would be, if, um, if tr- and I was thinking of a different passage, but mm-hmm. that one is another dang it moment. You know, these are these right. moments that can shape us. Yeah, and I, and I think part of what is assumed about us being in the image of God is that that was um, distorted or corrupted or destroyed in the fall of man. And the fact that Adam was created in the image of God and then begot a son in his own image after the fall suggests that that was not the case. Um, and so, yeah, what I have here in my in my essay is the idea of likeness of God being a structural reality of humankind is especially important in light of the fall of man in Genesis 3, as this means that the core of humanity's identity, their relationship with God, and their fundamental goodness has not been destroyed. Um and so where I went with all of this in the study of holiness is that holiness uh, and that set-apartness and that image of godness that we were created to be a part of and to participate in is something that we can choose to purposefully live into. Mm-hmm. But 
even if we don't, it does not take away from our value as human beings. It doesn't take away from the structural reality um, of our of our being good. Mm-hmm. I, what you just said there, I, I think we need to, in, in the heat of the day when people are so antagonistic with one another mm-hmm. on so many different things, whether it be the conversations on politics or families breaking apart or the sexuality conversations or immigration conversations, all of these mm-hmm. things that have... I think some understandable heat associated with them that I think the way that you start removing the heat from them and actually have genuine conversations is that uh, this is a full stop kind of statement that you just made is that under no circumstances is there anything reduced or diminished about being an image bearer of God in Mm -hmm. this world. Yeah. Like it doesn't... Everybody is made in God's image. Everybody carries that image. Everybody is set apart because of that. And I'm with you. Theologically, that didn't change because of the fall. Uh, Yeah. I think we really got led astray by some very Mm -hmm. prominent historical theologians. And by historical, I mean even like 1,500, 1,600 years ago. Yeah. That were playing around with this idea of seeing the image of God maybe marred in, in us, I think it would have been maybe better to to at least wonder, and I think this is where current Christianity is thankfully going in, in mm-hmm. some reformation of it, is to say that our ability to exercise our God-given vocation of stewardship of his tov yeah. has been marred. Like it's been, there, there's a darkness yeah. in this world now that prevents us the freedom of fully exercising, being stewards of the kingdom of light. I mean, I would m- happily say that as as a result of, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean that anybody is less an image bearer. It just means that we can't, the, the weeds, you know, that we will toil the land. It's not going to work as well. Like everything, yeah. we're up against something different. And that's what w- happened when sin was unleashed in the world. Yeah. And the, the idea of it being the stewardship piece of it, that was what was attacked in that. Um, I have two things about that. First of all, is I love the implication that then as human beings, regardless of whether or not we choose to live into our imageness, mm-hmm. likenessness, um, all, <laughs> yeah, right. all that jazz, um, that we, despite our best efforts as human beings, are actually incapable of altering our fundamental reality of being good and of being made in the image of right. God. But the other thing about the the stewardship is that one of the resources that I was using for this paper, and I don't off the top of my head remember which one, um, I had a page and a half of like citations for this, um, was saying that that stewardship and that dominion over creation is the consequence, but not the content mm-hmm. of our image mm-hmm. bearingness. Yeah, like, I love that. It's not that as humankind we have the right. Mm-hmm. To do that, it's that as we live into our image bearingness, mm-hmm. that is then that becomes the result is that then we have the right to rule. But it's only when we're living into that image bearingness in relationship with God that then we are fit to to steward creation. Yeah. Uh, well, I love that. And, and I think <clears throat> in at some point, I'm sure we'll end up having further conversations, but th- this really goes to the heart of then whatever we think the gospel is or the good news. Mm-hmm. And this is where I've been playing around with this for the better part of almost 10 to 15 years in class. And and I think it certainly has had a meaningful impact on my own faith. Yeah. And so I've, and this, these people like the Dallas Willards of the world have been really helpful in all of this to say that every human being has intrinsic value and worth. And therefore, when there was um, 
something else unleashed in this world that was mm-hmm. compromising our ability to live within the light of God and that, you know, hate and anger and warfare and pain and sorrow and suffering, all these, you know, that that's the real, the world is broken. I mean, it's mm-hmm. hard to say anything other than that as a consequence of sin being in this world. But then the good news is, is that Jesus took on the full blow of all of that, not because of a wrathful God, but because he, he drew it to himself and he defeated it at the resurrection. And thus, in theory, the New Testament witnesses is that anybody can come together under that new banner and not be limited in the exercise of good yeah. and light and wonder and hope and, and all of that. Uh, and it's a foreshadowing of, of his return yet to come. But in all of that, whether people have said the name of Jesus and believe and have ha- have given their life to, that doesn't change whether they are made in God's image. God came to rescue because we are all made in his image and then desires, of course, that all would say yes to his rescuing love once yeah. again. And And so it doesn't, anybody that you meet, whether it's a coffee shop barista like yourself. Uh-huh. Uh, I just, that's like, that's, that's the cliche all the time these days, but yeah. you know, somebody who I'm a cliche you, you are, you've been reduced, again on the deeper magic. You've been reduced to a cliche, but people use this example all the mm-hmm. time, meaning that I think sometimes like we're just so wrongly put off by somebody who looks different than us, sounds mm-hmm. different than us is maybe living an entirely different kind of lifestyle than whatever I'm living And there's lots of conversations to be had about that. But I think all the heat of those conversations can be taken out if we just say, you know what? No, you are inherently valuable and there's Mm -hmm. absolutely nothing you can do to change that. Yeah. And I'm inherently valuable and I am missing the mark. And so like, we're all missing the mark in ways. We just like, let's just make the ground level and then figure some things out from there as opposed to this shouting out from on high at other people. Yeah. And then part of what I love about the implications of that idea is that even the people we've we've used the example of the last battle in Narnia. Yes. With the dwarves at the table who they're saying, if you just um, not the dwarves, the Lucy and is it Lucy? Who all is there? I don't even remember. Well, I haven't Susan read that is book not in so there. long. And so Susan now we're is in, not so there, which I blocked out. Yeah, by the way. I know. I know. So for those of you that don't even know why our podcast is named The Deeper Magic, mm-hmm. it is a shout out from Nardia. It's a belief that there is all kinds of wonderful, good and spiritual things happening in this world, even if the mm-hmm. institutional church is not always doing a great job of reflecting that. Um, but the point is, is that in this last battle book, and I think it is Lucy, Peter and Edmund. Is are, Peter there? At are, that is point? Eustace there? I, I Eustace can't, is I don't remember maybe there. there. Some I don't of the children remember. of Narnia are there. Yeah, some, some of the, the children of some Narnia of the are there. Some of the protagonists of the series are there. <laughs> Indeed. Um, and they're talking to the dwarves at the table, um, and they're saying, "If you could just look up, if you could just yes. see yeah. the the wonder of the new Narnia that is around you." And the dwarves refuse to look up, and they are convinced that what they are eating at the table is sand when it is a beautiful feast, and mm. it it's this whole thing. Um, and so we have talked about that as a as a metaphor for what we as modern Christians understand as the idea of hell, where it's it's something that we are choosing. It's right. something that like not not in the way that people often talk about it in the sense that like you are choosing to lead a sinful life and like the whole thing. No, not that. Um, you are just choosing your own ideals, your own desires, your own way of seeing and existing in mm-hmm. the world over God's love and over God's redemption and over relationship with God. Um, and it is a, it is a choosing to actively not look up and not see it and choosing to stay in that shed. Mm -hmm. Um, 
But then part of what I love about this implication is that even that does not transform the fact that in your heart you are good. Like it, that never changes. Yeah. And and so that idea that you could sit at that table in that shed and be convinced you're eating sand and and stubbornly over and over and over again refuse to look up, but it does not change the fact mm. that you are good and that if you looked up, it would be waiting for you. Yeah, I, always. And that's where that's where God's never um failing love. Like then then it, all of this starts making sense. Mm-hmm. Some of the language that we use. Uh, like you said, it doesn't mean that the expressions of our lives are consistent with that which is light and good and all that, but it doesn't, but because we come from the hand of God who is good, that you just simply cannot change that essence. You yeah. can't change that essence for people. And that's all in Genesis 1. And it really should change the way we see one another, mm-hmm. I think, on almost every level. If you start with that, I, I'll say this. Um, having been a, a, a Christian of, of a sort, of an ilk, of a type <laughs> uh, since the time I was six with many revisions in mm-hmm. how I've understood kingdom because I've had so many dang it moments and I'll have so many more and I bet for eternity I'm going to have dang it moments. But um, that was one of the, the bigger life-changing moments for me was this move away from everybody is a sinful, awful, evil mess at their core and mm-hmm. some people get the luck of having God breathed on them so they can be in, you know, in heaven for eternity and all the baloney that came out of the Protestant Reformation related to those topics, uh, to the idea that we are at our core consistent with how early church thought about these things. And certainly early Judaism thought about these things. We come yeah. from the hand of God good. That doesn't diminish the impact of sin. It just means what you're saying is that everybody is good. It just changed the way I saw everybody in this world. It literally yeah. changed the way I saw everybody. Because then there is a great grief and sadness, even for those people who are perpetrating the most violent of ills in our society. It just, mm-hmm. while I would be horrified by that perpetration, there was still a sadness that something happened to bring them to this point. Maybe they did it to themselves. Maybe it was inflicted upon them that they would bring such suffering to other people there could still be a sadness for them because somewhere buried beneath the mess of all of that is still this image bearing goodness that is not yeah. changeable despite yeah. the horrors of what is being perpetrated. So I, I don't know. It's just a really interesting topic that I think if you don't start from that point, it's hard to understand anything that's going on in scripture. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so we can wrap up there. So you didn't, you're just saying that you did an isogeet, you exegeted. Yeah, I did. What, so maybe just do this. What was your biggest dang it moment? And then we'll wrap it up. Um, honestly, I don't know that I had one in doing this essay. Um, I mean, I might have. Let me. I was super unprepared for that question. You could have told me that ahead of time when we were talking about what we were going to talk it's way about. It's more fun to be unscripted. You know that. Yeah, except now it's going to take me 15 minutes to find the thing that I'm talking about because so, I have to skim 20 pages. So as, as you're skimming through, I mean, I'm assuming that you didn't know everything that was in Genesis 1 before. I mean, you, I mean, you clearly had some building blocks. Yeah. Were, you, were you doing the typical university thing where you repurposed existing work you have done in order to no. fulfill an accessible assignment to just to get out of Dodge? This is 20 pages. No, I did this very much on purpose um, because, first of all, I thought it was ridiculous that almost everybody in this 30-person class talked about holiness from a New Testament perspective oh, right. okay. instead of talking about it from an Old Testament perspective. Because the name of the class is what? Holiness in a biblical perspective. Biblical perspective. Right. Did we talk about the Old Testament? Not really. What's so um, funny to me is I had the same class at the same institution 
30 years ago now, I think, mm-hmm. 31 years ago. Uh, clearly, not, the professor I had was probably about 70, so I'm guessing he is no longer living. But I actually really enjoyed this class, but I don't remember learning some of what you have done either because it was done for much more of a Puritan, how unsinful are you? And to the extent that you're unsinful, you're, you're holy. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a confusing passage for many Christians where it says, be holy as I am holy, mm-hmm. that God says. And everybody's like, well, I can't do that. That's super unfair, God. You don't sin, I sin, blah, 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 blah. But yeah. when you understand that this is about being set apart, is remain set apart as my image bearers in, in this world. That's a whole different topic is what we're talking about. So it's, it's a bit of a dang it moment for me, your paper. Yeah. Uh, did, did you find any dang it moments for you? I, I think what I would say is that I don't know that I would say it was a like a dang it moment yeah. um, because I've spent so much time in the first chapter of Genesis. Have, like I, sure I've talked about this so much and so much of um, the research that I've already done into this has been from the Hebrew perspective. And so I like I think I learned a lot in writing this paper that I wouldn't have been able to articulate otherwise but it wasn't necessarily that I found something that I was like, oh, that's drastically different than my current understanding of this passage. Yeah. I went into this passage pretty much having an idea of what I was getting myself into and knowing where I was going with these ideas. And then as I was going through the research along the way, um, the most of the research that I was finding was supporting the mm, ideas that I already had or the things that I had already learned about it. Um and I pulled from a huge range of sources um, that I both did and didn't disagree with. Um, but I think one of the things that I thought was really interesting in all of this that I wouldn't have had a way to understand before, um, and we can talk about this more in our mental health episodes if we get into ideas of like body image and, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. all of that. Um, but where did it go? Um, okay, first that the image of God is found in humans mentally, spiritually, and physically. Hartley notes that in Hebrew culture, a person was made up of a combination of spirit, breath, and body, and that because any separation of the spirit from the body resulted in death, the image of God must include the body. And I think especially for women in the Christian church, there is such shame around our physical bodies. Right. There is so, like— kind of horribly, not kind of horribly, just horribly. Um, there's a lot of responsibility put on young women um, around the desires of men and that we are inherently, yeah, sorry, I'm getting emotional about this. Mm. Um, but that we are inherently sinful as women because our bodies are desirable to men. Yeah. Um, and that somehow that's our fault. Um, And so part of what I really loved about writing this paper is the idea that male and female were created at the same time and separated out and that the image of God does reside in our physical bodies as well, in our physical appearance. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And that that is as much intrinsically and structurally good as our minds, as our spirits, as our whatever. Um, And and I think what's so important to tease out of that, because I'm glad that just even the emotion, because I think men underestimate the kind of pain they've perpetrated on women related to this topic. Um, and it should be a dang it moment for a lot of, of men as well, I think. And I think what's unfortunate is that 
Beauty is so, like the idea of beauty is so corrupted now. Yeah. In our world and meaning that it's so subjective, right? At the end of the day, like what would be considered beautiful in a physical sense in Africa would be very different than in Asia, which is very different than in the United States. Yeah. I mean, somebody in Asia would look at a five, eight, you know, skinny jean to supermodel and say, you know, eat some food. <laughs> and it wouldn't, yeah. even, you know, it wouldn't even make sense kind of thing. And, and so we've corrupted it so much that I think it would be really helpful to understand what beauty is that doesn't have to do with um, being reduced down to f like some ob objective physical criteria. It isn't that at all. And I have way more information on some of that about mm -hmm. what beauty is it, and, and, and not, it's too much for this podcast, but it has to do with complexity of design. It has to do with what God was up to with human, with humankind and everything. Uh, and so it describes God being beautiful in the biblical text too. And it's clearly not referring to some outward uh, sexually objectified kind of, yeah. kind of criteria. So yeah, the idea of what you're saying, I think so beautifully is, is that this passage definitely invites us to see one another differently, not just as fellow image bearers, but even how we see how men should see women and women should see men. There's just so much possibility for healing in what you've done in these 20 pages. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think part of um, like why I would maybe point to this as my dang it moment is, <laughs> is more because I have, have grown up in a setting and in a teaching where the idea, like, because God doesn't have a physical form, therefore the image of God doesn't have anything to do with our physical yeah, bodies. Yeah, which is so untrue. Um, yeah, but that it's it's more a physical manifestation of the of what it means to be made in the image mm -hmm. of God. Um, and so it doesn't mean that like God looks like a what you're 52, 52 year old white man, yeah, yeah. or like a 21 year old white That's woman. That's my dang like, it moment. I thought he looked just like me. Oh yeah, just sorry, I hate yeah. to break it to you. Um, <laughs> Well, yeah, no, it doesn't mean that. It does just mean that the image of God is ingrained in our physical forms. Mm -hmm. And that was not something that I had been taught before. Um, and so I wouldn't call it a dang it moment because that was something that I didn't know that I had really hoped would be the case. Oh, I see. Yeah, that's super helpful. But it was a dang it moment in the sense that I was like, oh, this is counter to what I've been taught. Yeah. Um, thank goodness. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for doing this. I think, as I said, if I was a youth group leader, you just as a parent mm -hmm. uh, in so many ways, as I think about how to shepherd our kids that are really struggling with these kinds of ideas, there's so much in all of this if we let our minds play around with it. Yeah. About, as I've already said once before, uh, just a couple of minutes ago, there's just a lot of healing and restoration that could be done if we really understand what's happening in these Genesis accounts and who this beautiful God is that created these equally beautiful imagers in this world and what all of the implications of all of that are. So, yeah. so thanks for talking through all of that today. Yeah, no. You want to sign us out? Uh, sure. This has been The Deeper Magic. I'm Anna. Say bye, Peter. Bye, Peter. All right. Bye, guys. Thank you so much. Magic is produced by Audio on the Rocks, and our music for this episode is Auroras of Saturn by Music L Files. You can head on over to filmmusic.io and find that there, all licensed under Creative Commons 4.0, viewable on the site as well. Mm -hmm.